Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. I don't know that I've ever done this before in a sermon, but I want to open with a disclaimer. This sermon to me, as I prepared it, feels a little weird. Strange, not bad, I hope. Certainly faithful, I hope. I think there are some great things, but strange perhaps in its structure and in what I am trying to say. A little weird. And that's probably okay, even necessary from time to time, because the life of faith is a little weird for a variety of reasons. And part of that weirdness is because the Bible itself is a foreign book, written in foreign languages, written in a culture and a time quite alien to our own. As such, there are elements of the Bible, elements of a biblical worldview that, if we are honest, strike us as profoundly weird. In our familiarity, we can domesticate it. In our effort to emphasize its continued relevance, we can round off its sharper or more baffling edges. And sometimes that is a mistake. Sometimes, just like Austin, you've got to keep the Bible weird. Hopefully not make it weird, but keep it weird. Nathan Jennings, a professor of liturgics and Anglican studies here in town, has kept it weird in his research regarding the worldview that animates worship in the Old Testament and in the cultures around Israel during the time of the Bible's writing. In a way that is quite foreign to our modern minds, Jennings argues that the Bible assumes a perspective of worship that is all about the exchanging, the recycling of gifts, returning to a God those things that they have graced us with. So put in the context of sacrifice, the sacrifice of animals, the idea becomes one of, of feeding almost this divine figure with the stuff of life that we have received, returning it to the creator, nourishing this God. Jennings argues that a similar perspective animates Christian worship. Not that God needs us to feed him, but that worship offered to God, the father of Jesus, Israel's God, can be understood as a recycling the gifts of creation to him, the creator, as a means of depriving rival gods, other powers, refusing to participate in their systems of worship, not nourishing, not feeding them, rather cultivating the divine life in us. As I said, weird, heady stuff. And yet a question for you and I, perhaps this Lenten season, might be what or whom am I feeding in my life? What economies of worship am I participating in? What or who am I nourishing by my attention, my habits, my time? What vision of life is being cultivated? Another way of asking those questions, of course, is to consider to what or to whom am I offering myself? To whom am I making myself available? Our reading this morning from Genesis 22 offers us a picture of radical availability to God to a confounding, even troubling degree. This posture of availability is encapsulated in this short phrase Abraham says in verse one, here I am. Literally, behold me. 
This phrase, which is repeated by Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 and by Samuel, the young man Samuel, before God in the temple in 1 Samuel 3, is in these key moments something more than its, words might simple, its simple words might suggest. They become, in these moments, this phrase becomes expression of commitment, availability, allegiance. Here I am available to you, offered to your will, your purposes. To what are we saying, here I am, with our attention, our resources, our loves? Such an expression and the, the, the posture embodied there is remarkably vulnerable. It opens the person offering this expression, adopting this posture, up to the possibility of hurt, even abuse subjecting themselves to the desires, the whims, the purposes of someone else. That vulnerability plays out in Genesis 22 in a distressing way. Abraham, named prophetically as the father of many nations, having only recently seen this long-waited-for promise begin to be fulfilled in the miraculous provision of his son Isaac, given to him and his wife in this elderly stage, is now called to put all of that the son whom he loves, the fulfillment of the promise for which he has so long waited under the knife. Called not just to say, here I am myself, but here's my family. Here's my past, those years spent waiting. And here is my future embodied in the son whom I love. In the 1992 Western Unforgiven, the old assassin, William Money, played by elderly Clint Eastwood. That movie came out 32 years ago and Clint Eastwood was considered an old man then and he's still going strong, it's incredible. <laughs> but William Money, this old assassin reflects on the act of killing. And he says, it's a heck of a thing killing a man. You take away all he's got and all he's ever going to have. That quote gets at the all-encompassing posture of what Abraham is putting forward in Genesis 22. All he's got and all he's ever going to have. Even the fruit, the promised outcome from God, the very expression of God's favor and faithfulness is put on the line. Soren Kierkegaard in his book, Fear and Trembling, reflects on this passage and he identifies this great paradox and argues that Faith requires a leap into the absurd. We see that absurdity, we see that tension in Peter's response in our gospel reading today. Just before our reading, Peter has identified Jesus as the Messiah, the one whom we've all been waiting for. And then as Jesus goes on to explain what he's about to do, Peter's response is to rebuke him. It is absurd that this would happen to the Messiah. In the very same moment, it seems, that the promises are being fulfilled. They are being called into question. They're hanging in the balance. They're under the knife and on the line. So very precarious. Some of you know what that feels like. To live in the teeth of that challenge. In crisis, in tension, where the promises of God and their fulfillment, the hope that you have in him, seem vanishingly tenuous thin, 
precisely because of what obedience, faithfulness, the worship of God requires. And it would be so much easier to take a shortcut, be so much easier to compromise, to make the call somewhat less all-encompassing, to offer ourselves up, perhaps just in part, to something or someone else, a little more predictable, a little more under our control, a little more reliable, to shift our weight. If you were to come to my house and go upstairs and look up at the ceiling, you would find in one of our rooms an imprint in our ceiling, the exact size of my right palm. It occurred once when I was trying to be Mr. Fix-It with our ill-functioning AC unit, and I was up in our attic. As I was working, I thought that my weight was entirely upon one of the beams, one of the joists, I don't even know what they're called, but the, the big wood up there. I thought my weight was all on this joist beam. But there came a moment where I needed both of my hands to not quite fix the thing that I was working on. And in that moment, as I took my hand upon which some of my weight was resting, it was revealed to me quickly that my full weight was not where I thought it was. And so I had to quickly put my hand back down on the drywall, nearly punching right through the ceiling. My weight was not where I thought it was. It was untested. The fact that it is God who is the initiator in Genesis 22 is the most troubling element. Testing Abraham. That same word testing used here is found a few places in the Old Testament. And one such place is in Exodus 20:20, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments, which is our text for next week. And there, Moses puts the giving of God's law, his instruction, his commandments, in the context of a test. He says, these are given to you as a test. Asking the people of Israel, will they say, here I am to God and his ways? Not just in the moment of deliverance, the miracle of their exodus, but in this full, complete, ongoing way in a sustained fashion, with their lives available to him and his ways in the world, in contrast to all the other nations, with their full weight upon him, as they have proclaimed to be the case. That is the test. And the test is not momentary. Abraham is specifically commanded to make his offering of Isaac three days journey away. That means for three days he sustained this terrible obedience and availability to God. Our passage opens with him saying, here I am, but that's not the only time he says it. He responds again with this very same phrase to God, the same posture in verse eight, sustained. And there's a few moments in our passage this morning where the action is described in remarkable detail of gathering the wood, building the altar, binding Isaac, elongating the action, pointing out the costly details of this obedience. Think of the intention, the will at work here for three days. How did Abraham sleep? What did they talk about as they went on their way? And Genesis 22 comes in continuity with earlier passages. It's linked with Genesis 12. Abraham leaving his home, his native country behind on the promise of God. This has been Abraham's life. 
In the chapter just prior, Genesis 21, Abraham has sent out Hagar and Ishmael, his other son, away entrusting them to God. This is not a one and done kind of deal. The sacrifice to which we are called is not momentary, but is sustained and ongoing. Lent is a journey reflective of the journey of life, sustained availability before God. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul uses the language of living sacrifices. And the thing about living sacrifices is that they get distracted. They doom scroll on their phones. They trust in their bank accounts. They are inconsistent. They move off the altar toward other options. The life of faith is a long and broken here I am. A returning to the altar, a placing again and again of what is most valuable to us there. What most clearly communicates the favor of God to us, a returning to place ourselves time and again, setting our weight there. Here I am. What animates, what sustains the posture that Abraham is called to in our text this morning is this the bedrock conviction that God is to be trusted. That he is so completely trustworthy, so completely competent, so completely loving that he is worth this kind of radical availability and offering. It's easy to miss, but that conviction is present subtly in verse five. There, Abraham instructs the servants who have journeyed with he and Isaac to wait and he says this interesting thing. He says, we will come back to you. Not me, not I alone, but we. Whatever is going to happen on that mountain, Abraham believes he and Isaac will return together. That is, he trusts in God's ability to preserve what is on offer, to steward better than he the promises, and to return it to Abraham. One of the ways we can conceive of the season of Lent is that we enter into this season of testing and trial. We enter into the wilderness, we climb the mountain by removing practices and elements that we easily come to trust in for what we feel we need, fasts, or adding practices that stretch and challenge us, that push us out of self-reliance, such that we cultivate a greater posture of trust in God. We journey with Jesus, to the cross in some way, as a means of developing our faith in the promise of resurrection life, as an expression of confidence that he is wholly trustworthy with all that we are, all that we have, with all that will be. That conviction of trust is expressed in another short phrase by Abraham, also in verse 8. The Lord himself will provide. Literally, the Lord himself will see to it. Biblical scholar Ian Proven in his wrestling with this passage and the picture of God in it, like what kind of God commands Abraham in this way, has suggested that were it not for this story, the people of Israel would not know definitively that Yahweh was not like the other gods that they would not definitively know that Yahweh was not the kind of God who required the offering of children. 
The story is told to remind the people of God that Yahweh is not capricious or cruel the way of the other gods, the other powers are. Yahweh is weird in his compassion, his grace, his provision, in his commitment to preserve. Some of you today find it incredibly difficult to trust in the Lord for all kinds of reasons, some of them well warranted. Your experience of the world has been capricious and cruel. And perhaps precisely where you have tasted, glimpsed the faithfulness of God, grown in his promises, you've also experienced incredible pain. So the very idea of entrusting yourself, of taking on this posture of here I am before the Lord among his people seems complicated. Can he be trusted? In my own life, the challenge of trusting in the Lord has involved the difficult, often failed practice of relinquishing or holding more openly the good things that God has provided. A job, a career, my children. I love that song, Take My Life and Let It Be. It's so easy to sing and so hard to do. With these good things, it can be so difficult to say, here they are, here I am. Do with them what you will. At other times in my life, the difficulty in trusting the Lord has been related to feelings of lack, feelings of shame, feelings of neediness. The need feels so great. The, the cavernous brokenness of my own life, the world around me feels like too much. Think of Adam and Eve hiding in the garden in Genesis 3, right? What we've done is clearly not what we were supposed to do. We need to flee. We need to run away. The very antithesis, the very opposite of here I am. The stain, the shame, the need feels too great, too much for God. Can God be trusted in the face of our financial need our loneliness, our health crises, our ongoing patterns of sin and relational brokenness. It seems to me that the invitation of the Lord for us today by his word, indeed the gracious test of the Lord, is to set our hope, our trust in his provision more deeply. To recognize that whatever else we have experienced, that he sees to it with compassion and healing, with care in our places of pain. To recognize that he sees to it, that he provides in ways that are better than what we have. That he is a better steward of the things we so greatly value. And to recognize that he sees to it in ways that are more than sufficient for our great need. Philosopher and mystic, that's a life goal of a title, philosopher and mystic. Johannes Hartel has proposed the concept of theocentricity, God-centricity, as the foundational element of human flourishing. That is, he suggests, the human person, indeed, the collective human project, requires something transcendent, requires God at its center. Nothing else, no matter how good, a finite created thing will suffice. Only God is sufficient as the thing to which we are most available. 
to orient our lives toward God, to say, here I am to him, is the basis of the good, the beautiful, true life for which we long. Such a life, such a posture does not deny the goodness of the world around us, other goods. In our reading today, Abraham actually says, here I am a third time. In this instance, to Isaac himself. In verse seven, our translation renders it simply yes, but the words that Abraham uses are the exact same as those translated, here I am. That is, as a father, Abraham is present to his son. The tension of what God asks of him exists because of this. Abraham is present to God and present to his son, which will win out. That is the test. And the testimony of scripture is that if we are to love and serve those who are most dear to us, if we are to love and serve the world, if we are to hold to the good things that we've received, we must follow in Abraham's footsteps here. That is the here I am before God must win out. That is the only way to preserve the good ends for which we were made. And the only means by which we can actually love the created goods around us, our families, our friends, the world. Anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields will receive a hundred times as much. If I desire to love Lucy and Emmett well, I cannot see my hope and happiness as primarily being bound up in their lives with them. To do so would be to crush them and cause our relationship to collapse in resentment and bitterness. If I desire to be present to the needs of the world, I cannot see those needs as final and paramount, as most integral. That is the pathway toward adultery, toward dependence upon capricious and cruel powers, powers that cannot sustain the life and love for which I am made. If you want to love your family, if you want to love the world around you, set radical availability to God at the center of your life. I am not convinced that child sacrifice is merely the province of ancient idolatry. I don't see people building pyres, setting up altars, stoking fires. But the idols of our day exact a toll, a toll specifically upon our children. So when we prioritize bodily autonomy to such an extent, the destructive consequences of that are visited upon our children, unborn and born. And when our generation orients itself around entertainment, distraction, constant stimulation, the consequences are made manifest in skyrocketing anxiety and loneliness among children and teenagers whose lives are inundated with screens. And as our generation and others before it make an idol of control, security, and self-defense, a pandemic of school shootings is perpetuated in this nation. I do not mean to oversimplify these complex phenomena as though they could be easily explained away. What I want to emphasize is that what you and I orient our lives around, what we present ourselves to as the most important things has consequences for ourselves, for those we love dearly, and for the future. And the point of Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac, is that dependence upon God, availability to him, saying, here I am to him and his purposes, is the way into a flourishing future, into fullness of life. 
He is the one who is sufficient. He is the one who is able to provide. So we put our weight on him. We set our trust on him time and again that our hope, our life might flourish. We stretch out on the promise of who he is and the promise of his faithfulness with the expectation of his provision, of his preserving power in life and in death. And to that I say, who is sufficient? The reality is that my capacity to sustain that posture of trust is insufficient. My here I am's are too broken, too half-hearted, too incomplete. Our attention, our hearts are too divided. So it is such good news that while Abraham is a remarkable example of self-sacrifice in obedience to God's will, he is not the supreme example. For that, we look to Jesus, whose entire life was an unbroken, sustained, here I am to the Father's will, up to and beyond the point of Abraham and Isaac. He is the beloved son who is willingly bound for us. He is the provided lamb sufficient for our need, who ascends the hill carrying the instruments of his own destruction and follows through to the extremity of three days into death. And as we say yes to him, as we receive him at this table in our lives, weekly and daily, he who bound himself for us binds himself to us such that yours and mine are weak and faithless, here I am's, are made strong. And we stand before God in him, available and at the ready. His unbroken posture of faith and trust becomes ours. Is your faith faltering today? Do you find yourself weak, worn down, weary in your trust in the Father? Lift up your hearts, open up your hands. Say to the one who has given himself for us, here I am just as I am. Unexpectedly, strangely, weirdly, that is the path into the future. That is the path toward the life, the love, the provision that you and I desire. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.